Okay, well, um, a very good evening to you. Uh, welcome to the LSE. If you're not normally here, and if you are, welcome anyway. Um, I'm Tony Travers from the School of Public Policy and a professor in the government department here, and I'm really uh, here this evening to act as host for the event, uh, to talk about this book that's being launched tonight, and also then to uh, start a conversation with... Uh, Jamie Suskin, the author, and after that to um, allow a bit of Q&A before at the end of the evening there'll be an opportunity, should you wish to, to buy the book outside and indeed then to have it signed by the author. Um, so just by way of introduction and framing the debate, um, it is of course a remarkable time to be considering politics um, full stop, really. We're here on the, you know, the, the day coincidentally, perhaps I don't know if it is coincidental, of the American midterm elections. Uh, we live uh, in the UK at a time when every day brings, are we going to have a deal? Oh, yes, we are. Oh, no, we're not. There's a great deal of that going on about Brexit today. And I think it's fair to say that politics, not only in the US and uh, the UK, but in many parts of the world, is going through a remarkable transformation, in part because of past industrial and economic change. Now, what this book is about, and you'll hear from the author in a minute, so I'm not going to uh, short-circuit this, is a sense about looking forward to uh, another plausible change, the arrival of automation, AI, tech change, more uh, tech-driven change more generally, and its potential impact on politics and government. Now, for those of us like myself who are, as it were, steeped in the traditional way of understanding British government and politics, and are normally a bit of a sceptic about these changes, personally I can see how this particular change is going to affect the way we live, jobs that are available, and indeed potentially radically to affect uh, politics. So uh, that's what this evening's about. I'll say no more other than to introduce uh, the author. Now, the author is uh, Jamie Suskin, who is a barrister, called to the bar in 2013. He's had a distinguished academic career in universities in this country and in the United States, and indeed the book was written on a fellowship. I think I've got this right at Harvard. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he's also worked with real-life politicians, with Tony Blair and uh, with Senator Edward Kennedy, and so is in a great position to understand, as it sense, the starting point for uh, politics, but also to look at these remarkable changes which are about to affect not only politics, but in fact the whole of the way we live and work. So uh, with no further ado, I will introduce uh, Jamie, who is now going to speak for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion up here, and then Q&A. Ladies and gentlemen, Jamie Suskin. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for coming out tonight on a, a cold November evening. Henry Ford, who brought the automobile to the mass market, used to say that when people asked him what they wanted... Let me start that again. When Henry, For Henry Ford used to say that when he asked people what they wanted, they would tell him that they wanted faster horses. And I think that a lot of our thinking about politics is faster horses thinking. We imagine the future in terms of the present. 
We think it'll be a faster, slicker, slightly more chromatic <coughs> version of what we have today. And what I argue in future politics is that actually the future might look nothing like the present. And in fact, the transformation that we could be going through in our lifetimes could be as profound for humankind and the way that we live together as was the agricultural revolution or the invention of writing. And my view is that in times of great change, it pays to go back to the most basic and fundamental concepts of all when it comes to the way that we live together. And I've organized the book and I'm organizing tonight's talk around these four topics, power, freedom, democracy, and justice. And really I want to ask, what do these terms mean today? Where do they come from? And what might they mean in the future? Uh, a future radically transformed by technologies. But before I get onto that, I want to start by setting out some of the empirical premises for my thinking. What is the future that I have in mind? And uh, what does it look like for you and me? Now, in the book, I describe what I call the digital life world. And it's a world that is different from ours in three important respects. The first relates to what I call increasingly capable systems. That is to say, non-human systems, computing systems, of extraordinary power that are increasingly able to do things which we would have never thought possible, and they can do things which we thought only we could do, and they can do them as well as us, and in some cases they can do them better than us. And of course, foremost among these systems are going to be artificial intelligence systems. That is to say, systems performing tasks which were previously thought to require the cognitive or creative processes of human beings. And progress, particularly in recent years in AI, has been very impressive. You can see, however, that it took a while to gain speed. AI systems can already beat us in most of our own games, whether it's backgammon, checkers, and chess um, from the past. And of course, more recently, the game of Go, which is a game exponentially more complex than chess, and which just a few years ago it was said it was impossible that a computer could ever come close to beating the best human experts. But in 2016, you have uh, AlphaGo famously beating Lisa Doll. And what was interesting about the game in 2016 was that Lisa Doll got a game off AlphaGo. Uh, but at just a year later, and you can see how the timeline is becoming compressed here, AlphaGo Master beat another grandmaster uh, 3-0, and those games weren't <coughs> close. And then in later in 2017, another system developed by the same company, AlphaGo Zero, beat the original AlphaGo 100 times in a row. And what's particularly interesting about AlphaGo Zero is not just that it was, a it was able to beat 100 times in a row the system which in 2016, just a year earlier, people had been amazed by. But the AlphaGo Zero was the first such system that did not have any input at all on strategy from human experts in the game of Go. All of the previous ones had had very powerful processing systems themselves, but had had some, uh, I don't want to call it knowledge, but some training coded into them based on how the best human players thought the game of Go should be played. AlphaGo Zero <coughs> learned to be vastly superior to us by playing against itself countless times over and over again until it developed strategies and moves which humans could scarcely conceive of. AlphaGo Zero is what's called a machine learning system. Machine learning is currently the do dominant subset of artificial intelligence. And it, it's, it's different from a lot of forms of AI that, that have come before. It doesn't refer to 
artificial general intelligence, the idea that these are machines with, with cognitive or creative or um, consciousness capacities. Rather, they can do uh, one or two things in a very narrow field of endeavor, but they can do them very well. And the way they do it is by churning through enormous amounts of data and drawing patterns uh, and learning skills. So if a thing looks like an X, it's likely to be a Y. Or if the traffic light turns red, stop the vehicle. Self-driving cars are coded uh, to drive, not by humans typing in a code as to how a car should operate on the road, uh, but by learning from thousands of hours of footage of human driving. So machine learning systems are currently the most powerful systems of artificial intelligence that we have, but they're also problematic in some ways. And in my book, I'm interested in the problems of AI just as much as I'm interested in the extraordinary advances in it. The example on the screen just now is the example of Tay, which is a chatbot launched by Microsoft uh, just a couple of years ago. Tay was launched on Twitter to... Uh, it was, it, the idea was that it would mimic the speech patterns of a 17-year-old girl, and you could talk to Tay, and it would talk back to you. Chatbots are a very interesting type of artificial intelligence. Just over the summer, uh, a company here in the UK called Babylon developed a chatbot that could pass the exam to become a member of the Royal College of General Practitioners with 81% score. The average score for the human doctors that treat you and I is 72%. So this is a chatbot that can answer medical diagnostic questions better on average than the human experts. Back to Microsoft Tay, though, because Tay was crucially trained, and you can see uh, this line here. I've just realized I've been standing in front of my slides the entire time. Um, you're all so polite. I've been in America for a month. If, that, if I'd been doing that there, someone would have told me within five seconds. The final line here, the more you talk, the smarter Tay gets. So the idea was that Tay itself would learn from the data, the conversations that it had with other human beings. Tay lasted 16 hours before Microsoft had to take it down because, as perhaps you might have anticipated, it became a racist, uh, extremely sexually aggressive um, <laughs> monster, uh, which arguably says more about the human users of Twitter than it does about artificial intelligence. But some choice tweets from Tay. That's a picture of Adolf Hitler saying swag alert. Um, and my particular favorite, uh, which I think you're all grown up enough for, but which I don't always include on my slides, this was something that was sent to a young man who Tay was chatting to online. <laughs> so not a great PR coup for Microsoft, I think it's fair to say. It, it, it goes to show a broader point with machine learning systems, though, which is, as data scientists put it, trash in, trash out. You need good data to train them. Uh, and I'll be coming back to that later in the talk. So, so trend number one that's changing the world, increasingly capable systems. Trend number two is what I call increasingly integrated technology. In the past, it's said, a computer was the size of a room and you walked into it, and to program it, you used a screwdriver. Uh, for you and I, looking around at you here, the, the, the main interface we've had with technology in our lifetime has been with the keyboard and the mouse. Uh, but probably in the last few years, what David Rose calls the glass slab, the iPhones and the iPads and the like that sit in our pockets or on our desks. That's how we interact with these amazing technologies just now. But in the future, it's said, technology won't look anything like the glass slab. It will be distributed into the world around us, into our utilities and our appliances, our architecture, uh, in our public spaces and in our private spaces, and indeed on our bodies and sometimes inside them. Cisco predicts that there'll be up to uh, 50 billion devices connected to the internet just by 2020. And these devices won't just be connected to the internet. Many of them will have sensors so they can tell what's going on in the world around them. They'll have processing power. 
And through cloud computing, many will be able to draw on the kinds of artificial intelligence that I was just describing a moment ago. So you have intelligence that is dispersed into the world around you in a way that it never was in the past, meaning that for you and I, as time goes on, the distinction between online and offline, uh, cyberspace and real space, or real and virtual, and you can see I've put there virtual and augmented reality as well, contribute to this blurring, those distinctions will fade in meaning, and we won't be able to log off and shut down in the same way that we were able to in the past. So you've got increasingly capable systems, but you've also got these systems distributed into the world around you in objects that we previously never thought of as technology. Final big change related to the first two, what I call increasingly quantified society. We produce more data every two hours now than humans did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. Every two hours. And it's said that by 2020, there'll be 40 zettabytes of data in the world, which is the equivalent of three million books worth of information for every human on the planet. And what in reality this means is that what for most human beings who came before us would have been immediately lost to the sands of time, what they thought at any given time, where they went, who they associated with, what they said, what they purchased, how they lived their lives. For most of our forebears, these things were instantly forgotten, even, even in the age of, of writing, in the age of script. But increasingly, the trend is that nothing will be forgotten and more and more will be captured, creating a more and more detailed picture of our lives. Now, I think it would be strange if these three changes didn't affect politics in some way. And in fact, I argue that it's likely to affect it in quite a profound way. And I want to start, if I may, with the issue of power. Power, I describe, as a stable and wide-ranging capacity to get people to do things of significance which they wouldn't otherwise do or not to do things they would otherwise have done. It's about changing people's behavior. I'm sure many of you are politics students. You'll know that's a contested concept. There are different definitions of power. But I think this is a fair and basic one when I try to assess what I describe as the power of technology. There's a lot of vague chat in these days about how, to, how powerful technology is. And what I've tried to do in the book is develop some categories, some concepts to actually make that real and make it understandable. And I say there are three important ones. The first way that technology will get us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do is through what I call force. And it helps to, with an, to start with an anecdote here. You might recall that in about 2009, Gordon Brown, then Prime Minister, visited Barack Obama, President of the US, uh, in order to bask in some of his reflected glory and improve his popularity here at home. And our PM went to America armed with about 21,000 pounds worth of gifts for the US President, glorious gifts, one of, one of which was a pen made out of the same wood that the presidential desk was made out of. Really thoughtful stuff. And I imagine this as being like the most awkward family Christmas of all time. But because what Obama had got for Brown was 20 American DVDs uh, of classic films that he thought that Mr. and Mrs. Brown would enjoy watching. And of course, the British press, who are never kind to our prime ministers, treated this as a great snub and the end of the special relationship. But the real kicker in this story, the real sting in the tail for old Mr. Brown, was that when he got back to number 10 and kicked off his shoes and sat down with his prime ministerial popcorn to watch the films, he put the DVDs into the DVD player and they wouldn't play because they were coded only to work in the North American area. And there's a lesson there, which is that a technology can only ever do what it is coded to do, no matter how powerful you are, as Gordon Brown learned. So when you take your first drive in a self-driving car, 
and you ask that car to go over the speed limit just for a moment because it's an emergency and you want to get to the hospital, the car might well refuse to do so. You want it to park illegally just for a few seconds so you can dash into the shop or into the hospital, the car might refuse to do so. It might refuse to drive onto land which the GPS systems tell it involve trespassing. It might refuse to drive you to an establishment which the owners or manufacturers of the self-driving car consider to be a place of ill repute. When you use that technology, you're subject to the rules in it, just like Gordon Brown was subject to the rules of the DVDs. Now imagine being in a world, as we increasingly will be, of incredibly powerful systems filled with rules coded into them, surrounding us in our day-to-day lives, through which we exercise almost all of our daily and political functions, and I'll come on to that later. And remember that we'll always be subject to the code. Just like when you use Twitter, you can't send a tweet that's more than 140 characters. The system won't let you. And if you forget your password, a system isn't going to let you log on, no matter how good the case may be for letting you do so. So the first way that technologies exert power is by setting rules that the rest of us have to follow. The second way they do it is by watching us. Now, it's trite to say that the more you know about someone, the easier it is to influence or manipulate them. That's the basis of all online advertising. Data is gathered about us. Products are presented to us on the basis of what the algorithms and the data suggest we will find attractive. It's also increasingly the basis of political persuasion, too. So it's said that Cambridge Analytica, who worked for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential campaign, had up to 5,000 points of data about 200 million different Americans. And using that data, they were able to craft political messages down to the individual person and present the positions of the Republican candidates in a way which is attractive to that individual based on the data that had been gathered about them. So that the political adverts you see might be different from the adverts that the person who you share a house with sees or the person you share a bed with sees. That's how micro-targeted political advertising can be now. And so I say that when data is gathered about us, it serves an auxiliary function to power because the more that is known about us, the easier it is to influence us and to manipulate us based on our preferences. Data also serves a disciplinary function as well, though, because we change our behavior when we know that we're being watched, even uh, if if no one else is telling us to change our behavior. I actually think we're in a sort of transitional period just now between the past and the future here. Uh, There was a a case in the United States recently where the husband was accused of the murder of his wife. And his defense was that there had been a burglary. And during the course of that burglary, he and his wife had been tied down on chairs. uh, And the burglars had actually murdered her before leaving. The difficulty with his account was that she had been wearing a Fitbit at the time of her death. as a, a bracelet recording her life's activities and her movements and heart rate. And the data uploaded automatically from that device suggested that actually at the time of her death, she hadn't been in one place. She'd been moving around within the confines of the house at at, at a rapid pace. Uh, And her heart rate was elevated. That is to say she had been running away from whoever was chasing her. Uh, He's now in prison for her murder. We're not used to the idea that actually in our most intimate spaces, our lives are being recorded and watched. I was told recently of a couple whose relationship ended because they shared a pair of smart scales in the apartment in which they lived in together. Um, So you stand on these scales and they send information to your iPhone about your weight and body mass index. Um, So this this individual had had gone away for the the weekend and gets an update on her iPhone saying, here's your new weight and body mass index. It obviously was not a weight and a body mass index that was consistent with her large male boyfriend. 
but rather with a small and uh, slender woman. Um, so there was someone else standing on her scales, and that was the end of that relationship. <laughs> and the point I'm making here is the reason these folk get caught out is not because they're foolish, it's just because we haven't yet got into the mindset that actually increasingly our behavior is watched. You're not going to take a drive in a self-driving car to somewhere where you don't want your spouse to know about if when they switch on the car the next morning, the journey's there logged on the system. You're going to discipline yourself. You're going to change your own behavior. So when data's gathered about us, it exerts power in a, a subtle way, a disciplinary way as well. Um, and it's important never to forget that. So in addition to force and scrutiny, as I call them, the third way that technologies exert power over us is controlling our perception of the world. You and I only know immediately, to the extent that we know anything, what we can detect from our senses um, about the world around us. We rely on others to gather and present information about the world beyond our immediate perception. And increasingly, those we rely on are technologies, not other people. So when you look at news, it's likely increasingly that that will be news that has been if not actually written, and a lot of news is increasingly written by algorithms, are gathered and sorted by them and presented to you based on what those systems perceive you to be most interested in. Which is why the news that appears on my Facebook feed will be different from the news that appears on your Facebook feed, even if, in fact, it is the same story being covered, because it will be the story presented in a way that is most attractive to me and most attractive to you and most likely to result in a click. When we go out and search for information, we use digital systems. We don't use paper encyclopedias anymore. We type into Google, 60,000 requests a second. And in the future, search systems will look nothing like Google. They'll be much more like Amazon Echo, where you converse in natural language with a machine. You ask it questions. What's the weather like today? Why should I vote for Donald Trump? And the answers that those machines give you will frame your perception of the world. They will determine what you know about and what you don't know about, <coughs> what you consider relevant and what you consider irrelevant, what you consider right and wrong, true and false, disgusting or proper. I put communication there because we also rely, obviously, on digital systems to communicate with each other. We all WhatsApp each other. But if you use WeChat in China, if I send a text to my brother saying the words Amnesty International over the WeChat system, that message will never arrive. And neither of us will be told of that fact. So those who control the communication systems control the way we perceive the world as well. And of course, in a society as large and complex as China, a function like that uh, is extremely powerful. And finally, I put augmented reality up there um, before I prematurely clicked the button a moment ago. Because uh, we're just on the cusp of developing systems which will literally overlay our perception of the real world as well. So just last month, for instance, a, a pair of glasses was announced, which, block, which you put them on and it blocks out screens around you. The idea was that uh, screens are distracting and they, they, they appear to you as uh, black spaces. But it's hoped that these technologies in due course will be able to give you information when you look at things so they'll be able to tell you the name of the person you're speaking to, perhaps even their heart rate. Um, and what else will they block out? It's not at all inconceivable to me that you'll have systems which can block out triggering things, things which are considered... Um, or things which are considered hurtful or offensive. There is even underway in Silicon Valley, as we speak, a system to develop an augmented reality program that blocks out homeless people. So when you're walking down the streets of San Francisco, you literally do not see the people around you. So I say that in the digital life world, between force, 
technology is making rules that the rest of us have to follow. Scrutiny, technology is watching us with both the auxiliary and the disciplinary effects of that. And perception control, technology is a remarkable new source of power. And you'll notice I haven't talked about anything really to do with what we traditionally conceive of as politics so far. This is all completely different from how we normally think of power dynamics in society. And we need to start developing theories to deal with it. What are the implications for freedom? 74% of British people, I'm not going to ask you if you've done these things, but 74% of British people admit to having done one of the following. Streamed an episode of television online without paying for it. Um, paid someone cash in hand knowing that tax wouldn't be paid on that money. Taking more than one drink from the self-service dispenser in the restaurant despite having just paid for one. And jumping on and off of a bus without paying the fare. 74% of us have done these. Let's call them mini-crimes. Although they are, strictly speaking, crimes. Um, in the future, I suggest, these mini-crimes will not be possible. Fewer and fewer of them. You can't stream a, an episode of something online if the digital rights management technology, like the ones in the DVDs that Gordon Brown had, is so strong that only the most powerful hackers can get through it. You can't dodge a bus fare if your smart wallet automatically deducts the fare when you get on the bus. You can't um, pay someone cash in hand in a cashless economy. And you can't take more than your fair share of drinks at the dispenser if it's regulated using face recognition technology. And the reason there's a picture of a toilet roll on the slide behind me, and you've waited very patiently, the reason it's there is because if you go to the Temple of Heaven Park in Beijing tomorrow and try to use the public facilities there, you'll find that actually the, disp the dispensal of toilet paper is itself regulated by face recognition technology because they had a problem apparently with people taking more than their fair share. <laughs> the point being, corporations and governments are going to take advantage of these technologies to enforce the rules that they set. Why wouldn't they? It's the cheapest way to do it. So there is, I think, at the same time that technologies are going to vastly expand our horizons, and I do argue they will, they will also constrain them in many other ways. And what I call the kind of hinterland of naughtiness, mini-crimes at the edge of the law, will become a lot more difficult. Larry Lessig draws the distinction between a locked door and a door which says do not enter. In the future, we're going to encounter a lot more locked doors than we are doors that say do not enter, doors that you can go through at risk of future punishment. Uh, technology is going to limit our freedom, I, I suggest, in a way that much more often represents a locked door. And what's particularly interesting about the future of freedom, I think, is that it's, it's increasingly going to be in the hands of private bodies rather than the state. Now, in the past, it's really been for laws and social norms to determine what we can and can't do in society. But an increasing amount of political debate, for instance, important exercise of free speech, takes place on online platforms. And when you use those platforms, you are subject to the rules for all the reasons I've already given. If Twitter says you can only send 140 characters or 280, that's all you can do. If Facebook says you're banned from this platform, that's, that's it. Facebook's decided. If Reddit says, you've breached our community guidelines, I'm censoring you, that's it. The arbiters of freedom of speech are increasingly private bodies rather than public bodies. Likewise, with freedom of thought, it's not the state that's gathering and dispensing information to us or even um, agencies of the state. It's private companies and their algorithms 
which we rely on for the gathering of news and the presentation of information for us. Uh, and when it comes to freedom of conscience, imagine uh, a VR system, a virtual reality system. Oculus, which is owned by Facebook, came out with one just last month, which promises arena-style experiences. And one use of an arena-style experience might be, for instance, to experience what it was like to be in the D-Day landings, storming the beaches. So you put on this headset and the headphones, and you can imagine coming off the transports and the blood and the excitement and the fear and all that it entails. And I think most of us would agree that's an acceptable use of that technology. But what if what you want to experience is, in fact, being on the other side, defending the beaches, sitting behind a French or a German machine gun? Or what if you want to experience uh, being an executioner at Auschwitz or one of the 9-11 terrorists? John Stuart Mill, the harm principle on which our criminal law has been based for a couple of hundred years, says that everything should be legal in society so long as it doesn't harm anyone else. So something being immoral or offensive or disgusting is not generally seen as a reason to prohibit it. So should you be able to experience in virtual reality what it's like to engage in sexual conduct with a minor? The point I think about this is not that there's any one right answer, because I don't think there is, uh, although I do think it's interesting that the harm principle may be slightly out of date now, but rather that the person making this decision is not you or I, and it's not the government as things stand, it's the tech firm. So the outer limits of society's freedom, which is of course where you test society's real commitment to freedom, that boundary of morality and liberty is policed not by philosophers or by politicians, but by the lawyers at Facebook and the public policy guys there. I think that might, marks quite a profound change from the past. Now, when it comes to democracy, I think we're all quite familiar with some of the changes that technology has already had. It's changed the relationship between citizen and party. Almost all political organizing is done online now. We take it for granted. It's changed the relationship between citizen and state e-petitions, online consultations. It's changed the relationship between citizen and citizen. Arab Spring, Occupy, the growth of, of quick and febrile political movements, uh, which require far less time and cost than in the past. But in a way, a lot of that is faster horses stuff. It doesn't change fundamentally what democracy is. We also know that uh, the way that we deliberate has been affected by technology. We know that for the reasons I've already discussed, public discourse is increasingly fragmented, with each of us funneled into little worlds of informational comfort, where the, it, was used to be, it used to be thought in the 1990s that we would curate the so-called daily me, we would just choose w what we wanted to see, and there is still an element of that. But of course, increasingly, that choosing is done for us by algorithms, uh, which look at our data and present us with information they think we'll find attractive. And we know that if we spend more and more time in our own informational universes, that we're likely to become more embedded in those perspectives. That's just a, a well-recognized pattern of social science, leading to increased polarization. We hold our positions more strongly than we did before. And finally, we know that when you hold positions really, really strongly, you apply a less critical mind to information that's presented, which is in support of that position. And you apply a very critical mind to information which opposes it which is why fake news has become such a problem. We are more inclined to believe things if, we, if they support our basic worldview, and our worldviews are becoming more entrenched. Now, of course, the real reason for fake news, the base reason, is technological, because it's very easy now to quickly disseminate falsehoods that look true. But the intellectual culture that, that, that this technology has been born into is one where we 
are ready to believe what we are presented with, which is why the top 20 fake news stories on Facebook were shared and liked more than the top 20 true news stories on Facebook from the major news outlets in the United States before the last presidential election, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and three quarters of people believed they were true. These are big changes to democracy. But I say there are actually four even bigger changes waiting around the corner as a, res as a result of technology. One is the automation of deliberation. And I'll put it no higher than this. If we have systems like the chatbot I described earlier that can pass medical exams in natural language better than the best human experts, it's not crazy to ask when chatbots will reach our levels of political sophistication when it comes to democratic deliberation. And if you go online and look at political discourse in its current state, you will see that there are a lot of chatbots around. After the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi last month, the Arab-speaking world's social media was ablaze with uh, messages of support for the Saudi prince who was alleged to have ordered his murder. Almost all of those messages, it said, came from bots. They weren't human. And so the automation of deliberation is a real threat to a democracy, I say, bigger than anything we've encountered so far, because it is systems that are faster, and that if not actually smart, appear smarter than us, and are likely to be owned and controlled by the most powerful among us in society. The second is the challenge of direct democracy. The reason we have representative democracies, at least one reason, is that it's always been said that it's too difficult to, in a mass polity like ours, to have people participating all the time. So you need to give it to full-time politicians to do. In the future, that will no longer be the case. I mean, we're not far from a world where we have the technology where if you and I wanted to, we could swipe left or swipe right on, a, on 10 or 15 policies a day. Or we could delegate our vote in such matters to someone else who we trusted to vote on our behalf, our mum, or, or on a question of local health care, a consortium of doctors or nurses. These systems are possible now. And we have to ask why we don't have them. Why would direct democracy be a disaster? Or would it be better than what we currently have? So the intellectual comfort that we've had for hundreds of years, knowing that direct democracy isn't possible, is no longer one that we can live with. Data democracy. We say that we have government that represents the people, but in a world where there are three million books worth of data for every individual on the planet, is it really right to say that we have a government that represents the people when it does so on the basis of a tick in a box by, a, uh, 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 let's say, 50 or 60% of the population choosing between five boxes on a piece of paper maybe every two or three years. It's a paltry amount of data. Does that really represent the people? What about a system that actually took into account people's lived experiences, not just those who participate in the political system, but anyone whose data is gathered? Wouldn't a political system that by nature took that into account be inherently more representative than the one we currently have? Finally, AI democracy. If we already trust AI systems to trade stocks on our behalf, to diagnose our lung cancers, which they do better than human doctors, to diagnose <coughs> skin cancers, which they do better than the best dermatologists, which aspects of public policy would be better done by artificial intelligence systems? Uh, whether it's just running the local traffic system or contributing to questions of about how um, important resources should be distributed within a given area. It seems to me to be unlikely that as we use AI in all, almost every other aspect of our lives, that public policy questions are going to be immune from it. Final topic, justice. Justice is, you know, when I speak about justice, I speak about two types of justice. 
both of which come under the head of social justice. So I'm not talking about the justice that a judge uh, distributes just now. I'm talking about social justice in the political sense. One type of question is a question about distribution. Who should have what in society? How much inequality is permissible? How much should we give or redistribute uh, to, to, to others who are not ourselves? These are fundamental political questions. And in the past, they've been left to two uh, mechanisms. The market, which distributes stuff around society, and the state, which intervenes to correct or alter the effects of the market by taxing and spending um, and by appropriating and moving resources around society. But in the future, I suggest, an increasing amount of the work of, the, the work of distribution is going to be done, as it is already today, by algorithms, jobs, 72% of CVs are no longer read by human beings. They're scanned by automated systems. Credit, mortgages, insurance. These are all uh, fields in which algorithms are increasingly used to determine your access to them. Now, I say that a job is the most important thing you can have in a modern society. It's the most important social good there is. And things like credit, whether you can get a mortgage or whether you can start a business or insurance, particularly health insurance in other countries, not in ours. These are vitally important questions of social justice. And increasingly, they're decided by algorithms. And there are strengths to that, but there are also problems with it. The story broke last month about Amazon's recruitment algorithm, which was a machine learning system of the kind I described earlier, designed to tell whether upon reading a particular CV, that candidate was likely to be successful at Amazon. And the way that they trained that machine was by giving it the details of the people who already worked at Amazon and their CVs and saying, here are the successful people, here are their CVs, find out what's like, what, what the special source is, what's likely to make, what's the secret ingredient that's likely to make a, a candidate successful. Now, for reasons which were not good reasons, the working culture at Amazon for the previous 10 years had been dominated by men. And what the machine learning system therefore learned was that the best indicator of success at Amazon was whether you were a man. So when it received the CVs of women and scanned them, if that CV said the words women's volleyball team rather than the words volleyball team, uh, it went to the bottom of the pile. And if it contained the name of an all-women's college, it would go to the bottom of the pile. This is a system that was used by one of the most sophisticated technology companies in the world for four years, until it was ditched last month. So there are problems with these systems, as well as strengths and benefits. And I think if you think about the justice of distribution, just in terms of the market and the state, you're going to miss an enormous amount of politics in the 21st century, because a lot of it is going to take place in the algorithms that move stuff around. Um, we can talk about sentencing and policing in the questions, if you wish. The second type of justice that I think is really important is justice and recognition. And today is a good day for talking about justice and recognition because it basically relates to the politics of identity. The idea that actually there is injustice in the husband who abuses the wife or the master who owns the slave. Because, and the injustice there is not a question of distribution, how much each of them has, but a question of recognition that one person is treated as being as less moral, of less moral worth than someone else. And it's actually this longing for justice and recognition that animates a lot of today's politics, particularly in America. The anger of white men who feel like they have been ignored or disrespected. 
the anger of women in the Me Too campaign, the anger of African Americans in the Black Lives Matter campaign. Identity politics, in a way, is, is more potent than the politics of distribution. And so I think it's important to look at that when we think about the future of politics. And the sad reality is that in our lives and in the past, the only people who could offend you and treat you as less than human were other people. No longer. Machine learning systems can do it now as well, which is why when the man of Asian ethnicity in New Zealand used the online passport system there and applied for a passport, his application was rejected because the system told him that his eyes were closed. And the reason it did that was because it had been trained on only on white faces. It had never, as it were, seen a face of Asian ethnicity before. It's why you have voice recognition systems that literally can't hear the voices of women, or facial recognition systems which literally cannot see people of color. And in the future, these systems are going to be everywhere. And if you imagine the frustration that you feel when your computer freezes, imagine the frustration you feel when you don't get access to your building because the, the system can't see you because you have a facial disfigurement or because your face looks different from the data it was trained on. Or when you don't get your dream job because your CV said women's volleyball team. Um, or when Amazon and Alexa keeps doing the wrong thing or whatever replaces Alexa, the Amazon Echo, keeps doing the wrong thing because it doesn't understand your accent. There's so much more potential for injustice in a world suffused with smartish technologies than there are today. And so, really, my rallying cry in future politics is this. Unless we start preparing for a lot of these issues across power, across freedom, across democracy, and across justice, we will lose control of a lot of the things that matter to us. And in particular, there are four groups that I think are important, and I'll rattle through them quickly. Gladstone was the prime minister in the Victorian times, and he, he met Michael Faraday, the great scientist, and Faraday was showing him the invention of electricity. And Gladstone was unimpressed. He said, well, what does it do? And Faraday gave her an explanation relating to its scientific applications, how it would be used in the laboratory. And Gladstone said, yes, but what does it do? And Faraday said, well, Prime Minister, this is a very important scientific discovery. And again, he gave more technical applications of it. And Gladstone said, yes, but what does it do? And Faraday threw up his hands and said, well, Prime Minister, I'm sure eventually you'll find a way of taxing it. <laughs> we live in a world increasingly that is being remade by Gladstones and Faradays. Faradays, great scientists and engineers who are and claim to be transforming the world, but don't always have that great a sense of the moral and social implications of their work. And Gladstones, politicians, who know a lot about politics but not much about technology, and can't always see how it's relevant to what they do. And so for the Faradays, I say we need more philosophical engineers. It should be as crazy, I suggest, to graduate as a computer scientist without a rigorous training in ethics as it, as it would be for a doctor. Software engineers are social engineers now, whether they know it or not, and indeed whether they like it or not. And they have to accept that burden if that's the walk of life that they wish to go into. For the Gladstones, we can't have more politicians like Senator Orrin Hatch, who asked Mark Zuckerberg how Facebook made money even though it didn't charge its users. The basic question of the internet economy that any student of that system will have known for 15 years. It's not good enough. 
if we think we're going to have to regulate technology, it can't be guys like him doing it because they don't understand it. They don't understand the systems. For academics, like those political scientists here, it's no longer good enough to write political theory which treats the world as if it's going to be the same in 2050 as it was in 1950. I did an entire political science degree graduating in 2010, and I was able to get a good mark in it without once referring to the internet. Can't be right. We're not training people properly if that's, if that's what's happening. And finally, for the rest of us citizens, we need to stop treating technology as just as consumers. Just as when we get on a flight, we don't just think about how much it costs, but we ask whether we might be able to take that journey a less carbon-intensive way. We need a generational change where we recognize that the digital is political and that politics has expanded from the world of legislatures and politicians that we traditionally associated with in the last century. Because the great question of the last century was, what should be done by the state and what should be left to the free market and civil society? That was the ideological question that divided the Eastern Hemisphere from the Western Hemisphere and within societies that divided left from right. For us, the question is different, or it will be. To what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems and on what terms? And my challenge to you, if you are indeed students of economics or political science, is to start answering those questions because right now they're being answered for us by Gladstones and Faradays uh, who aren't necessarily best equipped to deal with them. Thank you very much. Of course, in the best tradition of a lecture about the future of tech and its impact on politics, I forgot to announce the hashtag for this evening's event. <laughs> so it shows you how well adapted, adapted I am, which is hashtag LSE tech. Um, so feel free to tweet as you go along. Um, right, it's just to get the ball rolling. You've talked about the, I mean, you've almost um, posited a question at the end, which, uh, which we were talking about before we came on stage earlier this evening, which is that the people who will regulate the world you've just described are precisely the ones who, you've just argued, are unlikely to know how to do it, that is, existing politicians. But more than that, as the um, companies that are responsible for the various ways of um, private companies policing what used to be thought of as the public realm and public discourse, they themselves are multinational as well. So it's not just that politicians are not always right at the cutting edge of the regulatory environment that you're describing. But more than that, no one country on its own can do it. And we can see this on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's a sort of double barrier, really, isn't there? And the, the <clears throat> challenge, therefore, for any one nation-state, even including the United States government or the EU as a block, big block, um, is how to make an informed decision about regulation that doesn't appear, I mean, either doesn't, I mean, is so ignorant of the way the thing is developing that it somehow fails to deliver regulation, or the risk is that they will try to regulate in a way that can keeps power, legitimate power, in the hands of the people who now have it, i.e. the people who will be doing the regulating. So there's a sort of conflict of interest in this between people who now have power and are setting the regulatory environment nationally and not, of course, internationally with any great ease, 
and the uh, those who are now handling increasingly the power, the corporations that do this. And you can see this every day in the media in this country and elsewhere with a sort of permanent low-level war now between politicians and the existing media, particularly the existing traditional media, and uh, the new media whom they see as a threat and an enemy. So how, how, how nationally and internationally are we going to avoid the fact that the people, or at least live with the reality, that the people who will be doing the regulating are the existing legitimate politicians for whom this is a threat. And by the way, where most of us in this room would, would consider them the legitimate people to be making the decisions. Well, let's start with the basics. Uh, I argue in the book, and I believe that in due course we all need regulation, probably of two kinds. One is to ensure transparency, we can discuss this more, and the other is to ensure what I call structural uh, regulation, traditionally regulated by antitrust and competition laws, which break up companies, I propose something slightly different. But that's way down the road here uh, in terms of policy responses. The first thing I think we need to do is develop a vocabulary to understand the changes that are taking place. That's really the main aim of my book. We're not even, uh, we scarcely even have the words to describe what we're going through. A good example is, People often say that tech firms are like states now. They're not like states. In almost every relevant political sense, they're unlike states, uh, except for the fact that they exert power. And then people say, well, they're like utilities. They're not like utilities. The water company never changed your perception of the world or got you to do something you wouldn't otherwise do. They're a new type of political entity. We don't have the word for it. And that's why we're shackled for thinking about the future in terms of the past. So once we get our vocabulary together, and once we stop treating technology just as uh, consumers and more like citizens, we're in a place to start demanding more of our legislators. Now, it is true that there are difficulties with regulation, as there are in the financial services industry too. One of them is that companies are multinational. Another is that the smartest minds are often in the private sector rather than the public sector, and also that's where all the money is. But that doesn't mean you can't give it a crack. And if you look at, say, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which the European Union passed, it's a good, pe good piece of law by and large. I mean, I've read it from cover to cover. It's incredibly boring. But actually, it gives you and I data rights over, our, uh, over the data that's gathered about us, about it being used for other purposes from the purpose from which it was gathered, transferred from one party to another, or transferred out of the jurisdiction of Europe. Far greater than our friends in America have. It's a completely different right. If you look in California, Diane Feinstein's introducing a law in the US Senate to control bots and their usage, um, such that they, for instance, they have to identify themselves as bots and aren't allowed to masquerade as humans. On Twitter, if you use Twitter in Germany, then, then tweets showing swastikas or Holocaust denial won't appear. Because it, surprise, surprise, it's not beyond the engineering genius of Twitter to, make, to filter out those tweets in a country where to um, publish them is illegal. It's not illegal here and it's not illegal in the States. Um, so <laughs> I long for a world where the principal regulatory challenge is the fact that some of these problems are international. Because the truth is we haven't even tried hard at a domestic level to try and mitigate some of the problems caused by technology. We're not even on the playing field as far as I'm concerned. And so I certainly don't think it's an excuse for public policymakers to say, oh, this is international, it's all very difficult, because there's a reason Google pays way more fines in Europe than it does in the United States. It's because we have a better antitrust regime here. Uh, and 
my only issue is, of course, that I'm not someone who, who supports regulation willy-nilly because you don't want to go the full China. You don't want to have a circumstance in which technology through nationalization or regulation is harnessed, the awesome power of it is harnessed for the benefit of the state rather than tech firms because then you're just under the thumb of someone else. The international nature of it uh, is problematic, but it's, 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 I, think, I think it's fairly far down the list of reasons why we're currently unprepared. Okay, one, one other point from me, and then we'll open it up. I mean, the one part of the state, the British state, any state, that I'm imagining will be furthest ahead in understanding the world you're describing as the security services. Mm. They will know a lot about all of this and will think about it sensitively uh, in a way that they're seeking to maximise their own power, but that's not necessarily a bad thing if they're going to protect us. So is there a problem somewhere buried in there as well that the one part of the state that will be driving as fast, as forward as fast as possible, fully to understand the way all this works, is the piece of the state that's most secret, most distant from public accountability. Uh, yes, and I, I mean, it's the, it's the old trade-off, isn't it, between security and freedom. I mean, as it happens, I think you'd much rather live in a country where your security services mm. and your cyber security defences were extremely powerful albeit secretive, rather than vulnerable and transparent. Uh, Again, I think if we're talking about transparency, the the secrecy of the secret services is is way down my list of concerns. It's the secrecy of commercial entities whose decisions increasingly govern our lives that troubles me. You know, right since the Greek times and the Roman times, humans have always said that the decisions that are made about their lives, even if they don't have direct control over them, they should be able to understand them. They should be made in public. It can't be right that Jack Dorsey, the chief executive of Twitter, can go to Congress, as he did last month, and say, I'm here out of the goodness of my heart, as no doubt he was, to tell you that at a very politically sensitive time, Twitter's algorithm went haywire and inadvertently downgraded from the public consciousness 600,000 Americans, some of whom were politicians running for re-election at that time, and that in all likelihood affected the outcome of several electoral battles in the United States. But don't worry, because I've come here out of the goodness of my heart to tell you that that's happened, and now it's all under control. It can't be that the first time we learn of that is when the chief executive of one of the biggest companies in the world decides out of the goodness of his heart to come and tell us it. If there was just a little bit more transparency about the way that the algorithms worked so that civic-minded individuals could uh, have a look at uh, under the bonnet to see if those systems were really functioning in the way that they were described and to identify problems before they happened, so fences at the top of the cliff rather than ambulances at the bottom... Um, that would be a more desirable outcome. I know that I've pivoted from your question about the secrecy of secret services onto something else, but I do think transparency and openness is going to be a huge theme for the next century. In fact, in fairness to to, uh, the secret services and to you, I was sort of implying that in some ways, secret services, despite their lack of accountability, separately would be a portal for conventional politics because 
conventional politicians control secret services to get a bit better understanding because they will have to have this understanding yeah. and they will be the people and they already are the people trying to chase the, um, the bots that are trying to affect elections, aren't they? Well, to a certain extent. At least they say they yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, GCHQ, I don't think, are dealing with the problem of fake news unless it's caused by Russian interference. But that's just, that's just, one, that's just one part of it. I mean, we, we can create quite enough problems for ourselves in ways which don't involve the security services. And, and I, I confess I don't know, but I would be alarmed if GCHQ behind closed doors was policing the flow of information about democratic processes in this country and in other countries, you know, by interfering with or regulating Facebook and Twitter. I don't think that is what's happening. You're right that that is the most technically advanced bit of government. What I would say, though, is, you know, you don't need... 600 software engineers in the House of Commons, but it just shouldn't be okay anymore for them to say, I don't know anything about the internet, I don't know anything about artificial intelligence, I've never sent, it. I've never sent an email, my, da- my daughter does the texting for me. A-, a lot of politicians still say stuff like this, and it baffles me. It's like them saying, I don't understand economics, or, um, or, or I can't add up. How can you purport to, 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 to write the rules uh, if you if you don't understand the society for which you're regulating. I think uh, self-deprecation in British politics has a lot to answer for. We'll come on to that. That's a subject for another day. I don't understand cars. Oh, no. Anyway, uh, which I don't, of course. He said, making the point. All right, let's take uh, some questions. A gentleman here and a lady there. And then a gentleman. Take three at a time. Yeah, one, two, three. Yep. In the, uh, in Ireland. So if you'd like to say who you are, say who you are. Andrew Smith. In the abortion referendum in Ireland, uh, the big tech companies uh, self-decided to ban all advertising. And it's often said that in, in referendums, in two-way decisions, it's, uh, it's much easier to manipulate. But surely there's an argument that until we get a handle on political advertising by the big tech companies, they should just be banned from all political advertising. Okay. Um, we'll take two more, yeah. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I'm Sophie uh, Remington Pounder. I'm an engineer. Um, you mentioned having a course <coughs> of ethics in degrees for computer scientists. I wonder if you could elaborate more about what you would use in terms of materials, etc., for people who've come to study things like linear vector spaces and not stuff to do with political theory and the nuances of coercion. Okay, two good questions, and third one down here, and then we'll pause and let Jamie answer. Uh, on the front, oh, well, I'll come to you. Okay, I'll come to you next. Thank you. My name is uh, Andrew. Excellent presentation. Really good anecdotes. Uh, nice, thoughtful things to ponder on. Thank you, Andrew. I guess uh, you seem to be quite pro-GDPR type regulation, and while I also believe as a citizen that it's in my interest to protect my data. There's also a big argument to be made that the only technology innovation coming out of Europe at the moment is regulation. And how a lot of it, there's a reason why none of the Apples and Googles and Facebooks are coming out of here. Uh, Just wanted you to comment on that in terms of the balance between being an incubator for innovation while at the same time prioritizing regulation. Okay, thank you so much. These are great questions. Um, Banning political adverts. Uh, there's certainly an argument for it. And the, the truth is, in, in the United States, it wouldn't be possible because of the First Amendment to the Constitution, free speech. Um, here, it probably wouldn't. 
be possible either to have a blanket ban on that kind of speech because of Article 10 human rights. You might see these as uh, examples of where the law has failed to catch up with technology. Um, I, 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 my own view is that a little bit more transparency in the meantime would be would, would get us a long way to reassuring people. I know that Facebook have started to, for instance, identify, and it's amazing they didn't do this in the past, but who, who is paying for political adverts. So there's now a database of, of, of the adverts and who is paying for them. Believe it or not, in 2016, as I described, the personalized political adverts that were sent to individuals around the United States, there's no record of them. We don't even know what was in them because there was nothing requiring them to be stored so I don't know what my neighbor, if I'm an American, I don't know what adverts my neighbor saw the day before the election. So there's all kinds of rules now that are coming into, um, actually I say rules, they're not, the f- policies of Facebooks that are coming in to make sure that that sort of thing is stored. I think an outright ban would go too far the other way, but I perfectly well understand the arguments for it. Linear vector theory. Obviously I've got loads of great ideas about textbooks on that, but I'll tell you those afterwards because you know, it's pretty niche. Um, if I may say so, uh, I, I, I disagree with the premise of the question. And in every audience I speak to, there is an engineer who says to me, I'm just an engineer. I just deal with numbers. I just deal with facts. And I'm not saying you are that person. But when I became a lawyer, I spent months um, training in ethics. And what you do is you look at all these really difficult cases, which in all likelihood will never come up in your career, although many do, uh, many sort of minor skirmishes do. When you train to become a doctor, you learn a series of touchstones about um, how to behave around patients and how how to treat people with dignity and how to administer medicine in an ethical fashion, even if you're not immediately applying those principles every day. I'm confident that it is wrong that you can become a software engineer working at a tech firm without a training in ethics because somewhere in your career you are going to write code or use data which has consequences which are not just commercial and not just technical but which are political. And the overall scheme of that is, as I've described, at a societal level... I would much rather have engineers who are overtrained in ethics, even if they don't always use it, than as they are currently, which is undertrained in it, and, and, <coughs> le- and leading to decisions in the data science um, that are, and the, and the design choice, choices that are often problematic in the ways that I've described. And so when we live in a world where there's not a new story every day about how some design choice has resulted in some colossal injustice, um, then I'll say, right, we might be teaching people too much ethics. Now, of course it is possible that there are, and I may have been um, too loose with my language, there might be some areas of science where you don't need an ethical training. But if you're going to work roughly in the areas that I'm describing, I would suggest that it's an important part of your your training. Uh, And... Yes, there are doctors and there are lawyers who have many ethics classes have sat through them and thought this is never going to happen to me. And maybe it won't, but maybe it will. And I see uh, software engineering as approaching a sort of profession in the same respect. There should be a standard of integrity and a standard of ethical attention uh, that, doesn't, that isn't currently required in that field. Um, 
The same thing, by the way, was said of financial traders 15 or 10 years ago. We just, we just move stuff around. Why should we have to take professional regulatory exams about our conduct? Well, the answer is at a systemic level, it causes problems when people don't, uh, when people aren't bore, taught at great boring length the, uh, the implications of their trading practices and the like. I'm sure that hasn't answered your question at all. Um, your point is a, is a very clever one, and it is true that the likes of a Google or a Facebook, one of the reasons they have ended up in the United States is because it is a Wild West in terms of data use. <clears throat> not sure the same is true of Apple. That's not a company built on data use, and I think that Apple will do just fine under the GDPR. And I do also think there are lots of reasons why uh, we don't have a single unicorn in this country or a single tech company worth more than $10 billion, um, in market value. And I don't think it's because of a, a data protection law that just came in, or indeed the one that came in in 1998. Uh, my ultimate point, however, is there has to be a balance. And if the political consequences of generating very rich, big tech companies we consider to be so unsatisfactory that we might want a few, fewer of those tech companies, then that is a decision which we should be brave enough to take. I would much rather live in a healthy democracy where there is freedom and where there is social justice with a little more regulation than one where the prime aim of society was to generate vast wealth through um, technologies. And you know, if, we have, if we have a few fewer startups in, the, in, the, in Europe because of that, maybe so be it. Right, clearly a need to sort out international tax uh, cooperation and indeed understanding of how to use it implied by that exchange. Now, was there a question? No, no, you were just somewhere? No, 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 all right. Lady here. Another two hands would be good. Lady here. And man here. Hi, my name is Jude. Thanks for the talk. I was a little perturbed to learn the mini crimes are actual crimes, but <laughs> um, in your talk you mentioned quite a lot about the sort of use in medicine, um, and I, I'm, well, I'm a doctor and I've been looking at this area recently. I think what's the real challenge about it is that for all the talk of it, there are six, correct me if I'm wrong, six peer-reviewed publications on the use of this in the in a real-world setting and one that is, you know, properly randomised. Um, you mentioned Babylon Health and it, as far as I'm aware, has an absolute dearth of peer-reviewed publications and I think its latest paper coming out in the Lancet this month is going to be pretty negative, actually, if anything. Um, but it is gaining quite a lot of traction across the NHS in a way that no medication or device would with, with that lack of evidence. So the question then is how, how, so this has the potential to help and you don't want to hold back innovation, but also you don't want to cause unnecessary harm. So how do we start to tackle and challenge this new, new set of innovation that doesn't seem to follow the same rules as the rest? And as, and as a medical profession, what's our role in that? In the same way as the politicians, we don't know, we don't know the ins and outs about tech, but we have some level of expertise, so what should our role be? Okay, interesting point. Now, where was the next, it's here. That's all right, self-help down the middle, very good. Thank you, thanks, um, Jude. That actually follows on quite neatly to my question, which is, um, 
Uh, it's interesting. I mean, you're obviously talking about big tech companies. Um, I come from a tech for good background, and um, there's, uh, there was an organization that I came across that was a startup in the last election um, that took people's, because um, we're all drowning in data, took um, people's preferences and got them to do a questionnaire and then told them how they should vote which was fascinating and interesting to, to see that actually what we want to do more than anything, it seems, is to come up with some kind of intellectual justification for an, what is, for a lot of people, an emotional gut reaction. And I was just wondering if, um, thinking about your example of the <coughs> D-Day um, the, the D-Day scenario, whether or not you could bring it back and comment on something very, very... Um, very current, which is the, the, the way that we've taken emotion and the Twitter storm around the Grenfell uh, video and, and produced some criminal allegations for something that, that is a private, would have in the past been a private act. And it just seems to me that that's a kind of wild west that we're trying to find our way through and the politicians and the police and so on are trying to do the same so I just, it's just about the difference between emotion and data and using that as a specific example and in fact you're linking intriguingly to the, the issue being discussed tonight but a sort of separate issue which may be linked to it which is the growth of emotion as a driver in public life which probably wouldn't have been as true, probably was somewhat true but as true 30 years ago Okay, just take it a year at random. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your time this evening, Jamie. Uh, what do you make of Nick Clegg's appointment at Facebook? Um, and do you think that one man can have such a profound impact on that technology giant? Thank you. Um, well, perhaps I'll take that question first. I, I, it would be childish of me, I think, to, to say something bad about that appointment because... What you have is Facebook, a company of um, Faraday's, and Nick Clegg, who, you know, whether you agree with him or not, is an experienced politician who understands uh, politics and society. So better. a former leader of the Liberal Party, I mean, for, just keep it... Indeed. Yeah. I think he's kept Prime Minister as well. <laughs> um, so I, I'm reluctant to be childish about it. I, I think the more that tech companies use and rely on the expertise of outside voices, the more likely they are to make good decisions. However, there was something in Nick Clegg's title which I didn't like. I can't exactly remember what the word was, but it was something like communications. And if what he is there for is to be a mouthpiece or a fig leaf, that is plainly a problem. And I think time will tell, and I think, and I think the role will be a great test of Nick Clegg's integrity. Because, you know, someone like Sheryl Sandberg, who, work, who is a very senior figure at Facebook, is a very, she is someone who's, who's worked to the highest levels in politics and also works in technology, but she's come under a lot of criticism recently for very much prioritizing the interests of Facebook over sorting out the issues that Congress and the like have been complaining about. So it doesn't always work out, but frankly, any efforts by tech firms to open up the sort of monoculture to outside influences is something I'm going to, to welcome, and I wish him the best of luck in his new job. Um, medicine. I'll read that Lancet interview with interest, and, and obviously, uh, you know, if it says that the system doesn't do 
what the reports say it does, then I'll stop. I'll get rid of that slide in my talk. Um, I mean, what's interesting about medicine is that, <laughs> although it feels to you like, and undoubtedly is true, that uh, there is less, that somehow when something comes out of the technology sector, it's afforded less scrutiny than if it were some other kind of medical innovation. Now consider the realm of politics where peer review isn't a thing and the societal and political effects of technologies are, are subject to, to very little academic scrutiny and certainly very little regulation. And you get a sense of the world that I live in where I worry that decisions that are taken in a data lab in Palo Alto are affecting the outcomes of elections in the Ukraine. And I just think this is bonkers because the person taking those decisions might not, let alone not be subject to peer review, but is, they might not even understand the political implications of what they're doing. As to how the medical profession should treat new innovations, the answer is with caution, but not too much caution if they can really help people. And... The truth is that a lot of doctors say and have said for a long time, oh, these systems will never be able to do what they do, what we do. And one, one task after another, those systems are encroaching on the work that doctors do. And then often what they fall back on is the idea that what people want is the human touch. Well, I'd much rather use a machine learning system that diagnosed my melanoma than have, than have a really nice dermatologist who misses it. Um, Anyway, none of the surgeons I've ever met have a good human touch, so I'm not sure I'd be missing out that much anyway. The broader point, and it actually links into the emotion point, is that one of the interesting things about artificial intelligence and the way it's moving just now is that some of its applications are very surprising. So, for instance, a, an AI system can tell the difference better between a, a, a human being's real smile and a fake smile better than humans can on average. Um, a machine learning system can tell whether a a girl standing next to a woman is that woman's daughter with frightening accuracy, much better than we can, just by body language and signals that are imperceptible to the human eye. The field of affective computing, where machines are increasingly able, through pattern recognition, to detect our emotions, is this person happy, sad, depressed, etc., is, is developing at an extraordinary rate because it is precisely the type of function that is quite easily under the way that today's machine learning systems are, are developed, it's quite easily improved. And so I think we're going to be in a world in the future where our machines can read our emotions. Um, I think advertisers are interested in that because I think the idea is that they will be able to pitch different things to you at different times of the day, depending on how you're feeling. A scary prospect. Um, can machines be used to take some of the emotions out of politics? I think you're right to indicate that social media leads to inflammation by and large rather than becalming. Uh, does it have to be that way? Does it have to be so engineered? For instance, in India, they have a big problem with WhatsApp. WhatsApp, the forwarding function of WhatsApp, has led to mass forwarding of untrue stories, which have in turn led to riots and lynchings in India. And WhatsApp has changed the way that the forwarding function works in engineering change. Um, so that that's no longer possible. And that, more than any government policy, has led to a great reduction in, um, in the riots in those parts of India. Um, the, the, the truth is that 
you know, the way that these systems are currently engineered is designed to arouse feelings in us. That is, in fact, what they are there for, feelings of addiction and reliance and dependency. People behave extraordinary ways on social media, and there's all kinds of reasons why. Some people think it's because you're anonymous. They think because you would never behave to someone face-to-face, -face, like the way you can behave to them over the Internet as a keyboard warrior. We're just in the very early stages of this stuff. I mean, I certainly think that artificial intelligence, as you indicated, could be used to make us more informed voters. Uh, imagine a system which, based on the data that it knows about you, and indeed perhaps answers to questions that you've given it about your values, could recommend to you how, how to vote or, or, or on a policy-by-policy -policy basis as well as a party-by-party -party basis. You could even have a system that votes for you on that basis. That's another way that artificial intelligence could become embedded in democracy. Something in your pocket that votes on your behalf a thousand times a day based on the principles that you've told it and the data that it has about you. And it doesn't need to vote yes or no. It could say, well, my citizen, this is not really in his interest, but if, you, if it was tweaked thusly, then it would be. And you could, and this is partly my point about data democracy, you could develop far more subtle systems of representing the people um, using technology than we do just now, which is a vote in a box every five years. So uh, I find it hard to imagine systems that would engineer less human emotion rather than more, but um, perhaps it could happen. It's definitely a worthwhile task. Okay, we're nearly, it's take two, actually, we haven't had any questions from the balcony. Three, we'll take three. It'll have to be short and sharp because we need to be done in five minutes. Hi, uh, my name is Gabriel, and um, I'm not sh sure if I understood you correctly, but, um, and I promise I will read the book next, next weekend, but uh, are, are you painting a kind of gloomy picture of the future? And I wonder if that's not somehow uh, wrong, not, not because it's not entertaining, but it, because it puts us in a perspective of being reactive to anything that companies do and kind of uh, prevents us from, from being proactive both as individuals but also as, as, uh, as uh, you know, just expressing our, our political views. And I would argue with actually the facts that you stated at the beginning of the, the talk that, that, that technology becomes cheaper and more accessible and more embedded into the society and we can actually leverage that to, to make the most of what we want and even in policy to express better our political will. Like we, we could consider creating non-state uh, non public actors, not private actors. And, and we, we can see now communities around, arranging themselves around those lines. So, what are your thoughts around that? Thank you. Uh, my name is Dion. I'm also in law. Um, and my question is about the connection between your conclusion and the um, trends that you've described. Of course, uh, I have to agree that more education is better in general. Um, but I wonder to what extent the issues raised by the modalities of control that you've mentioned arise because of this sort of lack of knowledge as opposed to, um, you know, uh, failings of enforcement of our existing norms and, and laws. So equality law is equality law, you know, whether Amazon discriminates or yeah. surveillance is surveillance and breach of privacy. Um, yeah, that's my question. Thank you. Okay. And there's a third one over here. All right. Gonna be a bit of a walk, sorry about that.
Thank you, Jamie, uh, for an intriguing talk. Uh, my question is about an, what I call emergent system, as well as how we keep computers honest to us. To give you an uh, example, you mentioned that software engineers are very powerful. But the problem, isn't it the question now, is even, as, even the software, even its computers, programming computers, you remember there was a piece of news uh, recently I, I read saying that some scientists trying to teach two computers are uh, the English language. And it turns out those two computers have created a new language out of themselves, which we cannot understand. Isn't it this? So it seems that in this case, a software engineer have created a major version, but then things been out of control. So even they, you know, are not in control anymore. And how do, and the question now is, how do we keep the computers honest to us? I think I can say in fairness just on Jamie's behalf that the book explicitly, explicitly says it doesn't go too deep into dystopian futures, but uh, <laughs> let's have a go now. Well, uh, perhaps again I'll start with, with your question first. There is a very interesting and intriguing question about machine learning algorithms in particular who come up with results that even their human engineers are surprised by and can't understand. And the example I gave of AlphaGo Zero is a good one of them. You know, that, that was a system that was making moves in the Go games that even the best human Go, game, uh, Go players couldn't understand, let alone the people who had engineered the systems. For now, though, let's assume that those are a relatively small number of the overall technologies that I've described. So I do think that a lot of systems, like the, like the Amazon system it, it, that I described in relation to um, recruitment, that is a system which is of great social importance, can fairly be described in three minutes, and in retrospect, it's quite clear what the problem was. And if, Am and if the people, I would hazard, if the people writing that software were from a little bit more of a diverse group and a little bit more trained in the ethical implications of the data that they were feeding into it, they might have spotted it. So I think a lot of the problems that I've described aren't about the incomprehensibility of machines. But the problem you describe is one that I mentioned in the book, and I do think it is a real issue that... And what I would say is there's at least a principled argument that in relation to important questions of liberty, democracy, and justice, if systems touch on those questions, then maybe we shouldn't use ones that are unexplainable to us. I mean, that might be a political principle in itself. If you cannot explain how this system is working, then it should not be distributing important resources in society, or it should not be determining what we can and can't do. It seems to me that is not an unreasonable principle of political theory. Others might differ. Um, I would also say that there are, you know, on the engineering side, there are differences in opinion about how difficult it really is to explain stuff. It might just be really, really, really difficult and expensive to work out why machines work the way they work. But if that's the case, then that might be a, a burden of time and expense that should be shouldered, and as much effort should be put into the burden of explaining as into the uh, developing of the products themselves. Um, Dion, your question about the enforcement of existing laws, and it partly relates to Gabriel's question as well. The problem I identify is that technologies move faster than our ability to keep up with them, both intellectually, morally, and in many cases legally and regulatorily. You are right that something like the Amazon algorithm, at least in this country, 
might fall foul of our discrimination laws. I would challenge you back to ask whether a discrimination law is the best way of... Um, a discrimination law written in, on paper is the best way of regulating that kind of system and why we shouldn't have laws specifically for digital systems that uh, distribute goods of the kind that that algorithm was distributing. So laws which require values to be coded into systems or require engineers to, pay, to have heed to values that are in those systems rather than just waiting for outcomes and testing them against laws which um, do or do not work. You know, discrimination is an interesting one because in, the, in, in this country, the intent of the discriminator is often much less important than the outcome, whereas in the United States, discriminatory intent is a big part of discrimination law there. But how can you prove the intent of the Amazon machine learning system? So there's a good example of one law like ours, which is actually not badly drafted to deal with that kind of situation, and another's like theirs, which is quite poorly drafted to deal with that kind of situation. The answer is we need better, smarter laws which take into account that some of the decision-making processes that they will be regulating will be decisions taken by machines. And that's going to be something that will gradually become a feature of our law, I suggest, in the next 10 or 20 years. Gabriel, I'm glad you asked me this question about whether the, the, uh, the outlook is, is, is gloomy, whether my outlook is gloomy. Um, In the book, I, I say that we have everything to play for. And I do believe that. I do believe that if we get our act together, the next century can be more free, more just, more democratic, or even better than democratic, in ways which are far preferable to the past. But I don't accept that by highlighting the path we are on, I am, as I think you put it, preventing people from being proactive. If anything, I'm trying to make people be more proactive because the future, I suggest, is skidding away from us. These technologies are developing way faster than the social systems that we're using to govern them. And they're developing not according to the logic of politics, but according to the logic of the market because that is what they are born into. And so when decisions are taken about technologies, they are taken by market actors according to market principles. What will maximize profit? What will maximize market share? What will sell the most? What will get the most clicks, the most attention? And that logic is not the same as the logic of politics. What is in the common good? What is needed for the strength of our democracy? What's likely to lead to a more just distribution of uh, goods at the end of the process as opposed to the one at the beginning? And so... My big theme is that there is a whole world of politics going on around us, a whole universe of politics in the devices that increasingly surround us, which we don't even have the words to describe yet, but we certainly don't have the arguments and the ideologies. And you know, if we are to answer that question, to what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems and on what terms, in anything other than a vague or useless way, we need to be, as you say, proactive. So we have everything to play for, but the reason I phrase it as a call to action is because it is people like you in this room who are able to make all the difference. But make no mistake, I think if we, if we just allow these systems to develop along the logic of the market without any political intervention at all by the citizens or by the state, 
then I think the result at the end is not necessarily going to be a favorable one for democracy, freedom, and justice. And why would it be? Because the logic that it's been developed according to is not the logic of politics. It's the logic of something else entirely. So the the digital is political is a challenge uh, for all of you as much as it is a a complaint about the way that we're currently heading. Because unless we sort it out, I think um, the consequences won't be to our liking. And there we must finish. Um, I think, uh, to use a, a rather large cliche, this is the beginning of a debate, the beginning of a discussion rather than the end of it. Uh, we are at the hinterland, as we've just heard, between the market and politics, but actually, of course, at some level between science and the humanities. Lots of borderlands here. And um, I think lots of questions have been begged for me this evening, in my mind, about the extent to which... You know, we, I think we, we already get that existing, though many of the existing law and legal precepts will still be usable, but not in a way that's the traditional way of using them and by legislators and judges and courts in a way they've been used to operating. And that seems to me uh, something that, as I said at the beginning, uh, it is a convincing argument uh, in the sense that we need to think about how we do this and try to get ahead of accidentally finding ourselves as a democracy, in a sense, with the wrong, um, with, without the capacity to know exactly how a democracy should function. That's, I suppose, how it boils down to. Anyway, enough from me. Um, I'm going to uh, end. I'm going to thank Jamie in a second. But before I do that, there is an opportunity to buy the book, so to go into far greater deal, detail than we have already. And uh, as, as I said at the beginning, is a double benefit. If you'd like to buy it and then bring it back, Jamie will stay here and will, should you so require, so you so wish, sign the book. So uh, if you want it greatly diminished in value almost immediately, <laughs> I will sign it for you. There we are. Anyway, I'd just like to thank Jamie for actually a very elegant. Um, talk this evening on, on a complex issue which is in this hinterland as I was just dis- describing. So uh, on all your behalf, uh, thank you for coming. Jamie Susskind. Thank you, Tony.